Turn your Bibles, please, this morning to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. We'll return to Revelation next week. We're going to be looking at these. We're going to read a few verses here. We'll be looking at a number of passages between chapter 29 and 35, and then Jeremiah 31, 15. Again, Genesis chapter 30, verse 22, and this is the Word of God. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. And join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad this morning that we have your truth. Father, we have your word, and it is certain. We ask for your Spirit's help, Lord, as we consider it, to show us the, the wonder of your great salvation, of your providence, Lord, of your work in our lives. Uh, Father, great for the great God that you are. Um, and uh, may your Spirit work, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, long-time South Carolina newspaperman Ken Berger wrote a column reflecting on what parents try to instill in their children and what they expect of them. And he writes this, Every time I left the house, my mother used to holler out the back door to me to be sweet. No matter where I was going, those two simple words summarized my parents' expectations for my behavior. Almost something would bless your heart, all right? Um, he says, I, I was supposed to conduct myself at all times in a manner that only reflected well on them, but on me uh, and everybody in our family. I was expected to be nice to everybody regardless of color, age, or position in the world. And to address people in a pleasant tone, to open doors for ladies, respect my elders, watch out for younger children, to be on time, to be presentable, to look both ways before crossing the street, and to speak in complete sentences. Yes, sir, and yes, ma'am were the integral parts of my vocabulary. I was not to talk back, but to speak when spoken to. I was to play fair, not say bad words in public, and to stay awake in church. Especially important. Um, I was my, to mind my manners at the table. I never thought of arguing with my daddy. And he says, all those things came under the topic of be sweet. So, you know, it's, it's not easy to always instill those values and practices in our children. It's hard work. It's minute by minute. It's hour by hour, day by day, week by week, year by year. I'm sure Hillary Rosen wished she'd never said it quite the way it came out, but she, she, she charged one particular mother of five children. She said she never worked a day in her life. <laughs> and so, um, you know, if you ever watched a mother, you know that uh, that's just a, that's a silly thing to say. Um, and mothers, you work the hardest of anybody. They certainly work the longest hours and get the least pay for, for certain. Um, being a mother is an amazing calling from God. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart. It requires a strong and tender heart to make some very tough decisions, uh, decisions that are risky, that can be heart-wrenching, uh, decisions that require faith. Let me say at the outset, this is, it's a difficult subject to talk about uh, because the mention of mothers brings a lot of emotion. For many, uh, there's nobody dearer to our hearts uh, than mother. Uh, but for some, it, it, brings, it brings pain, to be sure. Uh, it may be the pain of a broken relationship with your mother. Uh, it may be, the, for, for mothers, there's the broken relationship with your, your child, perhaps, um, or a child that's not walking with Christ. It may be the pain of, of your mother's death uh, or the death of your child or grandchild. 
we live in a, you've got to blame somebody's society, and, and sometimes moms are all too easy uh, to get blamed. Could go trap. Uh, if a mother's absent, children can feel neglected or unwanted, abandoned. There are women who wish to be mothers, uh, but there's the problem of infertility. Uh, modern technology has gone a long way, but it's not for everyone. It doesn't always work. Adoption is not always an option. And, and Rachel uh, faced me this challenge. She struggled with infertility. She had an absent mother. She had an abusive father. Uh, ultimately, she gives birth to two sons. So she had a, a hard, difficult time in many respects, uh, real struggles, yet she successfully raised one of the greatest uh, men in history. And her ultimate legacy is her compassion for all children. So how did that happen in God's providence? Uh, what do we learn from her? Let's, let's go to the text and see. First, please note that Rachel grew up in a broken home, a broken world. She was living in a house divided. Uh, let's give a synopsis of her family background. She shared a great-grandfather, Tara, with her husband, Jacob, but her faith background could not have been more different. Uh, Rachel's family was thoroughly pagan. She was raised to worship idols. She had a little bit of knowledge, perhaps, of her cousins that lived down in Canaan, uh, her great-uncle Abraham, her uncle Isaac. She knew that they were a religious family. She knew they were quite rich. She knew that Aunt Becky had moved there years ago uh, to be the wife of Isaac. And she'd heard the dramatic story about the servant showing up just at the same time Aunt Becky showed up at the well with the sheep. She'd seen some of the jewelry uh, and heard about it. And she thought, what a romantic story that was. You know, and uh, how getting away from all this was probably the best thing that ever happened to Aunt Becky. Because you see... Rebecca's brother, Rachel's dad Laban, uh, is a tyrant. He's a materialistic, manipulative, scheming tyrant. And her brothers, Rachel's brothers, were just like their dad. Uh, he was an idol worshiper. He used people to get what he wanted. Uh, her mother had died at some point when she was growing up. The mother is never mentioned in the story. Uh, and her absence left a void. Uh, in Rachel and her older sister Leah's lives. See, Laban was abusive towards his daughters, not physically, but emotionally. And he used them for his own gain. There was no mother there to protect them from their cruel father. Nor was she present to help Leah and Rachel struggle with their sibling rivalry. The competition between them was fierce, and as we know, it lasted Rachel's entire lifetime. She spent her entire life in competition with Leah, uh, really because they ended up sharing the same husband. Uh, family, Rachel's family, seemed to be more working class. Rachel, like her Aunt Rebecca, was a shepherdess. Maybe she dreamed of her own escape. Another rags to riches story. If only history would repeat itself and another Prince Charming show up at the well. She could get out of that broken home, out of that broken world. Friends, our past does shape and impact our present. But it does not require us to dwell on it and allow it to, to, to dictate our lives. It's not to be used as an excuse. 
One expert said we must let go and take responsibility for ourselves, our actions, and our lives. And if our past is unpleasant, it should be a driving force uh, in our lives to make the future better. You know, there's a crisis in our nation today in the, the number of broken families. Uh, it, it means a, a lack of security for our children. It often means a lack of discipline. People moving away from the biblical truth that's uh, been the foundation for our nation has had a devastating impact. There's an ongoing attempt to redefine marriage and the family. And the challenge we have as the church is that we need to come alongside struggling families and we need to point them to God's Word. Now the good news for Rachel is Prince Charming arrives. I got you, babe, becomes their song. Pick it up in uh, 29.9, all right, 29.9. Uh, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now verse 16. Uh, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. It was love at first sight, all right? When Jacob arrives, just like Abraham's servant, God in his providence brings Rachel to the well at just the right time with the sheep. It's a, that romantic song from 1968 by the doors, hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name, all right? Um, always a very touching uh, song, uh, but that's, you know, that's where they are. Um, and so Jacob goes to work for Uncle Laban, uh, he strikes a deal with Laban, I work for you seven years. And uh, I get Rachel as a wife. And so that's all the incentive that a love-struck Jacob needs. Jacob goes to work, and, and, and because of Yahweh, his covenant God, Laban, if you will, strikes it rich. God blesses Laban tremendously because of Jacob. Remember, that's, that's the covenant blessing that all peoples will be blessed through God's people. So the seven years are over. And Jacob's ready for the wedding. There's a huge celebration. So in 29:22 we read, So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, What's this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It's not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. And we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob did so and completed her week. Uh, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And so Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and, and served Laban for another seven years. So love at first sight becomes shock at first light. All right. Uh, Jacob has not married the love of his life. Uh, he's not married the girl of his dreams. The woman in his arms is Leah. Now we know Jacob is deceiver. That's what his name means. He is a deceiver and, and the deceiver gets deceived. Now we don't know where Rachel was during all this, but given her spunk, I think she's gagged someplace and tied up. Uh, I don't see her going along with this very peaceably. Um, the last thing she wants to do is share her husband with her sister. Uh, Leah, of course, had to have been complicit in the whole affair. 
Um, the point is Laban uses his daughters for his own personal gain. So Jacob still fixes those Rachel, strikes another deal with Laban, seven more years for her. So a week after marrying Leah, he finally marries the love of his life. Now, it doesn't take a genius for us to know what a bad idea this whole thing is, all right? Um, for Rachel, the dream of a Prince Charming is, is a reality. And she has great expectations for her marriage, but she also has Leah in the next tent, all right? So they start their life together, and right away, Leah starts having sons. One, two, three, four. That's at least four or five years have gone by now. And Rachel has none. It's because of the children's situation, she begins to feel the part of the second wife. And that's a strange place for her. Here was someone who we suspect was used to getting her own way. Someone who was always used her natural beauty to her advantage. But now it seems at least to her that Lee is winning. So it becomes a difficult marriage. Love makes the world go round. But it takes more than just love to have a good marriage. Uh, Rachel wants to become a mother, yet that desire pits her against the world. Look at Genesis 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. She desperately wants to be a mother. Some suggest that she's perhaps becoming idolatrous of that at this point. I'm not sure. She is a desperate woman, though. She grew up in a manipulative home, uh, and so that becomes her default behavior. So first she blames her husband. Jacob responds with anger. He correctly sees that children are a gift from God. And then she has what can only be called a wacky idea to bring her maid Rachel into the family. And custom-wise, any children Bilhah has will be considered Rachel's. Just want to say, Rachel, great thinking. Bring another woman into the equation. And Jacob, he's foolish enough to go along. And so she gets two sons this way. But it's not satisfying, especially when Leah then introduces Zilpah into the same thing and gets two sons. Then Rachel tries superstition. She uses mandrakes as an aphrodisiac. So at this point in the story that, that she's desperate and she's out of solutions, that it appears she's finally converted. Because in those days... You became a believer by faith in the promise that God would one day send the Messiah. The promise had been made to Adam and Eve. It had been made to Abraham. In the picture, Abraham prepare, of, of preparing to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice, that God provides a substitute, a lamb, to Isaac, take Isaac's place, becomes a model for them. And it appears Rachel believes God's promise of a Savior to come. How do we know that? Because we find Rachel praying. Look at 30.22. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. 
And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. All right, she prays in faith. God grants her grace. God answers her prayer. And she sees God's hand. Joseph means, may he add. It can also sounds like the word, take away my reproach. It means sort of two ideas. Um, and so she gives birth to Joseph. And for the next six years or so, she raises little Joseph there in Padan Aram. And then God tells Jacob, take your family and go back to Canaan. So Jacob leaves without telling Laban. And in 3130, we start with Laban's response to what Jacob's done. And now you've gone away because you long greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that's yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban chases after them. We know as, as a grandfather, he, he emotionally abused his daughters. He'd used them for his own advantage, but he seems to have an affection for his grandchildren. Uh, and not only that, he accuses Jacob of stealing the family idols. Now Jacob's so certain that, that nobody's done that, he says, well, well search the tents. Uh, he says, by the way, you can even execute whoever was it that took the things. He clearly doesn't know what Rachel did. So when he gets to Rachel's tent, she uses a ruse to stay seated on the camel saddle where she's hidden the idols, um, and off Laban goes. So people ask the question, why did Rachel steal the family idols? It's a great question. Some think it's because she's not a believer. Uh, I don't think that's true. Uh, some suggest that she's leaving home, and uh, uh, probably for good if Aunt Becky's uh, life is an example. And she wants to hang on something familiar from her past when she enters this new world. Now, as you, as you think about it, and you look at the text, I want you to watch the reaction of Laban here, her father. Now, I would raise the possibility that taking these idols is a way, even if it's silly, of really getting back at her dad. Because you read the account, Laban's sad about his grandchildren leaving, but he is angry that his idols have been taken. You know, her father had used her for material, material advantage. He was abusive and she strikes back at him. I know it doesn't sound exactly virtuous, but uh, God's word is, is honest always in how it paints its heroes. So life in Canaan is hardly a bed of roses for the dysfunctional family. You know, we have rape, we have murder as they get settled. Finally, Jacob seizes the spiritual leadership of the family, of the home in Genesis 35, and he calls for a family revival. And so Rachel and um, uh, the entire family follow Jacob's lead, and they get rid of all of the idols. Now remember again what Rachel said when Joseph was born. May God add to me another son. Uh, now God answers her prayer, her prayer, uh, she's been praying since Joseph's birth, and she's pregnant with a second child. So as they travel, when they're near Bethlehem, Rachel goes into labor. Pick it up in verse 30, in 35, 16. Then they tra- journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. 
When her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have been another son. As her soul was departing, for she was dying, so uh, she called his name Benoni, uh, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Uh, Rachel gives birth to a son. Uh, tragically, she dies in the childbirth. She, always, she, you know, she has another son. She names him Benoni, which means son of my trouble or son of my pain. Um, Jacob, brokenhearted with the death of his wife, renames the lad Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, the son I'll keep close to me. Uh, so how did Rachel do at mothering? That's the question I want us to consider for a moment. Um, Joseph would probably be about 10, maybe 11, uh, when, when Rachel dies. So how did he turn out? You now, Clarence McCartney, the great uh, preacher of the first half of the 20th century, calls Joseph the most Christ-like man in the Old Testament. Uh, now, how did that happen? I mean, when you look at this family, all that goes wrong, how does Joseph turn out the way that he does? Uh, Rachel spent 10 years pouring her life into one of the greatest men in history. For 10 years, she shaped his life. I don't believe Joseph would have turned out the way he did without a godly mother. After all, just check out his brothers, all right? Certainly, Jacob had an impact um, but Rachel's is the difference maker. You know, if a mother's ultimate purpose is to instill in her child a knowledge of faith in and a love for God, then Rachel accomplished that most important task. Joseph demonstrates that. If a mother's purpose is to equip her children to face difficult circumstances, she succeeded. Joseph demonstrates that. If a mother's goal is to, to mold her child into an adult with principle and with moral integrity, well, Rachel did that. We watch Joseph mature and take the lead in ruling Egypt. We see just such a man. She taught him not to be vindictive. Perhaps she learned from her own mistakes there. So how would we describe Rachel's approach? I suspect that her words to Joseph each day when he left the tent after teaching God's truth were what? Be sweet. Yeah, be sweet. All right. Then finally, Rachel leaves a, a legacy of compassion. Go over to Jeremiah 31, 15. Um, you know, one of the an intriguing verses about her is a thousand years or more after her death. Jeremiah's talking about the northern kingdom going into exile. And he writes this, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Uh, the descendants of Joseph, uh, and therefore Rachel, were the, the, the dominant tribes in the north. Uh, uh, and it's a Rachel here. His picture is weeping over the impact sin has had on their lives as they're carried into exile. Uh, then this same verse is quoted in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, when King Herod slaughters all the young boys around Bethlehem in his vain attempt to kill the newborn Jesus. 
And they become the first martyrs, and we're told Rachel weeps for the martyred children. You've got to wonder, why this focus on Rachel? And that's because of Rachel's intense love for her children. And she hurt for the hurting children of the world. She was an abused child who treated motherhood as a privilege, and she maximized the time she had with her children. See, here's where we need to be sweet. Our concern cannot just be for our children, our grandchildren. We love them fiercely. But our love must be for all the children of this church and ultimately the children of this community and world. We've got to find ways to minister to, to hurting children in this world, to the hungry, to the persecuted, to the trafficked. We become the means to be support the hands and feet of, of those whom God comforts children as a mother comforts uh, children, as God comforts them, as God's Word tells us. So I would challenge us. God gives us children to minister to here every week. We need nursery service. We need disciplers. Area schools need mentors for at-risk children. We need people who can teach and model what it is to be sweet here and around the world. So what about us? Uh, first, we, we need to be thankful for God's gift of mothers. Thankful that God has given us the gift of motherhood. And Rachel's an example of someone who overcomes a non-Christian upbringing, a painful childhood, a difficult marriage, difficult circumstances, to become an outstanding mother. She came to know Jesus as her Savior. And I would just say, if you're here today with, without Jesus as your Savior, please allow us to share about, about Him with you today. And like Rachel, we've got to be committed to raising children. Our children, our grandchildren, the children who attend this church, we want them to love God, we want them to have a biblical world and life view, and we want them to live that out. We've got to teach them what it is to be sweet in a, in a world that's really not so sweet. And we need to be reaching out in the community and our world, giving out the gospel as well as ministering to the immense physical needs for those who are hungry, those who are homeless, those who are orphans, those who are caught up in human trafficking. In other words, as Rachel probably said to Joseph each morning, we've got to go out even now. And be sweet. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for the impact of your word. Father, the word that, uh, Father, uh, promises that changed Rachel, Father. The promises that she taught to Joseph that he clung to and lived out. So, Father, we pray you'll find us to be faithful, Lord. Faithful in the, with our own children and grandchildren. Faithful, Father, with the children you entrust to this church. Faithful, Father, to, to be found reaching out to this community, Lord, and indeed this world. Uh, Father, to share the hope of Jesus Christ. So, Father, use us, we pray, as a body. Uh, Father, use us this week, we pray. If there's anybody here, Lord, that doesn't yet know the joy of knowing Jesus. Lord, today, show them your Son, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.